Are you confused about the microbiome? What all the new research we keep reading actually means and what we're meant to do as a result? Should we be supplementing probiotics daily? Should sick people be given fecal transplants from healthy people? Can microbiome tests really define your optimal diet? These are some of the questions I'm going to explore with my guest today, Ben Brown, author of The Digestive Health Solution and director of the Nutritional Medicine Institute, a naturopath and nutritional therapist. Uh, and uh, the Nutritional Medicine Institute is an educational advocacy and research group committed to advancing the science and practice of nutritional medicine. Ben has his finger firmly on the pulse of the advancing field of microbiome and the role of gut bacteria plays in our health. So Ben, welcome to my podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor and privilege and very much looking forward to this conversation. It's such an interesting area. Yes, it's, I mean, it's really kind of everyone's talking about microbiome. Uh, when I was teaching nutritional therapists back in the 90s, while we always had digestion as, as front stage, I mean, really the foundation of health, the whole story of the microbiome, that is the role of bacteria in the gut, was relatively simple. Also, we thought there were two families of friendly bacteria, the lactobacillus acidophilus bacteria, the bio uh, bifidobacteria, or A and B, acidophilus and bifidus, and certain infections and antibiotics and too much alcohol and bad diet, a lack of fiber would delete them. Well, the idea was that supplementing these bacteria could restore the gut microbiome. But in the last 20 or so years, things have got much more complicated and interesting. I mean, how many different gut bacteria actually are there? Yeah, it's a good question. There's, there's sort of estimates between around 300 to several, you know, hundred different species. And within that, there's a, a tremendous amount of complexity and it varies a lot from person to person. Um, but what's more impressive is when you start to hear figures like there's more bacterial cells in your gut than there are human cells in your body. And it's been proposed that we're actually more microbial than we are human, which makes it sound much more <laughs> exciting, you know, and, and that's where, as you point out, that this is all going is that it's really our understanding of the microbes, microbiome's complexity has opened a Pandora's box in medicine of, of all this uh, influence on our health that we didn't really know existed until quite recently. What makes a bacteria good or bad, if one could say such a thing? Yeah, the, it's a good question, and I'm not sure we can say such a thing. So often they're generalized as being good or bad, and certain bacteria certainly are bad. Some are, are clearly bad, but to overgeneralize as them having sort of good or bad personalities is perhaps a bit simplistic because the same bacteria can be beneficial for one person but be problematic for another. So this is really where part of our understanding has changed a bit in recent years is that it's not just good bugs versus bad bugs. It's more about thinking about this as an ecosystem or a garden almost. And that sure there might be weeds, but they need, you know, we need to understand those in context if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I and mean, I think that the whole sort of field came into existence with the recognition of things like salmonella and staphylococcus, you know, mm. MRSA is a, is a, a version of staphylococcus. So in other words, bacteria that were really bad for you and 
consequently, the solution was antibiotics. And to a large extent, you know, we started, you know, certainly in my parents' generation, you know, sanitizing absolutely everything, sterilizing and sanitizing. And of course, in these COVID years, you know, we've had, <laughs> we've had a lot of that. And it has both, you know, advantages. One of my friends uh, working out in Africa has said there's been extraordinary health benefits just from people learning to wash their hands and do things like that. Uh, but is, is it good to have a greater variety? And what is it that encourages this? So you talk about, you know, whatever, you know, up to 400 different bacteria. Mm. But, uh, you know, do healthy people have more than unhealthy people? Do different cultures have more than others? Yeah, it's a, I mean, this is a, a sort of a, a really interesting area of, of um, work that's going on in the microbiome. And the big question here, without getting into the details, is what constitutes a healthy microbiome? And the answer is we don't really know for sure because there's such variability from person to person. We can't say this bacteria is good. You need a lot of it. Um, but what is emerging in the, you know, in the smoke of all this confusion is, is this issue around diversity. And, you know, as you astutely point to is, is actually more and more diversity seems to be an important barometer of a healthy microbiome. Now, how did we arrive at this idea? Well, it comes from studies on, on diets and traditional cultures. And there was, there was some brilliant work that was done comparing more traditional uh, diets to more modernized diets. So there was one report that springs to mind in which they studied a group of people living in rural Africa um, looked at their diet and they were eating a lot of high fiber, you know, natural foods that they're foraging or subsistence farming and, and uh, very little processed food. And then they measured their microbiome and then they compared their microbiome results to uh, a group living in uh, Milan. It was, this was all done in children. Uh, these kids in Milan were eating a lot more processed foods, very low fiber, very low fruits and vegetables in comparison and then they looked at their microbiomes as well and analyzed them. And what was found in this, what was really a, a very important study that opened this uh, way of thinking is that basically in Africa on this whole food, more natural diet is their microbiome was much more diverse. They had a lot more different species and bacteria. And whereas in Milan in, in you know, in a more industrialized environment, there was a lot less diversity, much fewer species and we've since been able to show that this diversity index correlates with markers of health more broadly in, in your body. So where this is all going is that complexity and diversity is good as far as your microbiome goes. It seems to have a very important relationship to the food that you're eating and in turn also has an important connection to your overall health. And... Um why is it good? You know, what are, what are the benefits of having a more diverse microbiome? Are there some mechanisms um, that lead to less diseases? Yeah, it seems to be like that. So it, diversity equals resilience, basically. So it, when you think about this, like it, it sounds like a giant leap, but we need to start thinking about this like more ecologically. And for me, the best analogy is like a garden or a forest or you know, if, if anyone has a garden or understands weeds and 
you know, plants or, or the ecology of forests or natural environments, it's really very, very similar in that if you've got a, a, um, a plantation of, say, corn or like a single crop plantation, that plantation is very uh, susceptible to disease because it's just one plant. There's not a lot of diversity. If a pest gets in there, it will wipe everything out and it will be very difficult to recover the ecology. Whereas if you look at an Amazon rainforest, like it's very hard to perturb that natural environment because it's extremely resilient because there's lots of different plants there. So a pest that goes into the Amazon rainforest is going to have a really hard time of destroying that environment because there's a lot, lot of natural protection inherent in that diversity, whereas it could just wipe out a cornfield because there's only one plant. So that's kind of a good way of thinking of it is, is basically diversity equals resilience equals health. Mm. And before we move on to what to actually eat to get that diversity, resilience and health or to supplement to encourage a healthy gut microbiome, I'd like to ask you about microbiome tests. There's quite a few on the market. Uh, do they use the same method? How accurate are they? What's your what's your opinion on these? Yeah, I think I think um, there is a lot available and there's a lot of excitement around these tests and they definitely have some value. But the thing to keep in mind if you're looking at doing these tests is that the quality of them varies quite a lot from lab to lab. And also your reading is going to be very different from another person's. And it will also change quite a bit from day to day, even within the same day. So what that basically means is that like, by all means, do a microbiome test. It's really interesting and fun to do, but just be mindful that it's very changeable and very variable and you don't want to hang a lot of weight on it. So one of the problems is, is that some of the labs will say, oh, this is a good bacteria. This is a bad bacteria and your levels are this. So you've got too many bad ones, but that could change hours later or tomorrow. So you don't want to basically place too much weight on it and do too much about it. It's kind of good for interest sake and to give you an overall picture of what's going on in your gut. But it's, um, you know, it's, there are problems with, with um, using them too specifically, I, I feel. And are they using the same, you know, the same testing process? What I mean by that is that, you know, for years there's been various debates about food intolerances mm -hmm. and how to test for them and so on. And, even though nothing's quite as linear as this, uh, there's been quite a lot of convergence on using the technique, which is called an ELISA IgG quantitative test. Uh, but even so, uh, one of the big problems and the reasons why one lab will produce different results to another uh, is that it then depends on the, on the sort of sample kit. Uh, in effect, there, there is this container of lots of tiny containers, each containing different food proteins, and it's not standardized. Yeah. So, so you know, yeah. at least we've got a process, in this case, IgG testing. Uh, it's not standardized across labs, so you get different results. Um, is that also what's happening at this point in the evolution of, of these microbiome tests? Are they using the same process? Yeah, it's a, um, basically they, they may be sometimes. So there are different processes, including culture and DNA sequencing type techniques, um, and they will vary from lab to lab. So some will use a combination of the two, some will use 
it's less common now, but some may use only culture. Many of them are using just DNA sequencing now. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, so that, I think that's important to keep in mind. And I think some of the, to my mind, some of the better labs use a combination of the two where they're appropriate. Um, but even with that said, one of the problems we have at the moment is that although the process may be the same, like a DNA sequencing technique, um, the lab's output may be different based on what they're doing internally at the lab themselves. So their own algorithms and processing techniques within the lab, although they're using very similar or the same technology. So it is, we do have some problems with standardization at the moment um, that would then have a, an important impact on the, the quality of the readings that we're seeing from lab to lab. Yes, I, I uh, did a test with a number of different labs, you know, literally on the same sample. Mm -hmm. There was that confusion. But I think what was even more confusing, and this is, I, I think the sort of commerciality of the tests, uh, you know, the idea is give us your sample and we'll tell you exactly, you know, what you should eat. Yeah. Uh, I remember in, in one, it said, absolutely don't eat broccoli, uh, you know, quoting one study in relation to one bacteria that would, you know, make that happen. And the other one, it said, absolutely do eat broccoli, you know, <laughs> quoting another study. So can we use these tests? Uh, really to establish what we can be eating, what we should be eating. Yeah, it's not there yet. Um, so there are general associations between microbes and diet, and you may be able to get a, a bit of a picture for deficits um, potentially in the microbiome and then make broad suggestions around what you could eat. But I think as a whole where, you know, a lot of this work is really best left to researchers at this point of time and the commercial commercialization of test kits and, and more importantly, recommendations based on the results of those test kits, I think is quite a while off um, of really, you know, providing something meaningful and important for, for people. Now we used to have a linear concept of supplementing bacteria that you were missing or likely to be missing, for example, after a course of antibiotics, but is it supplementation or diet that can make the biggest difference to one's microbiome? Yeah. What's really interesting about this whole field is that it's really starting to change the way we think, as you rightly put, um, the old way of thinking is it was fairly straightforward. You know, we had good bugs, bad bugs, and antibiotics disrupted that. And we take a probiotic if it's disrupted, et cetera. Um, but really where this is all going is just turning our, our thinking up on its head. And, and in terms of impacting the microbiome, um, definitely our diet has a huge influence and is probably one of the most important, if not the most important modifiable thing that we can do to improve the health of our microbiome. But what's really interesting, there's a lot beyond diet in our diet and, oh, sorry, and in our environment and lifestyle that also has an effect. So, you know, things like time in, I mean, this sounds a bit out there, but things like time in nature and having a pet and who you hang around with and whether or not you exercise, <laughs> And, you know, these sorts and whether or not you're stressed, for example, all seem to have an important impact on microbial 
ecology in the gut, which is, you know, we didn't really think of until recently. So it, definitely diets are huge and extremely important, but also our whole lifestyle um, and, and overall health seems to be quite important as well. And should we, after a course of antibiotics, definitely have probiotics, beneficial bacterial supplements? I, I think they're a great idea if you're taking probiotics. And I would even go further to say that if you know you're going to do a course of antibiotics, take some probiotics before you even start and then take them while you're taking the antibiotics and for a little while afterwards. And the reason for that is because we know that probiotics generally are quite good at preventing the negative effects of antibiotics on our microbiome. So that essentially what they're doing is protecting you from the antibiotic killing off all your, your, um, a lot of your microbiome. So it, I think there's a lot of value in that. And that's really well supported by quite a lot of clinical research. Yeah. My logic has always been, if you need to take a, you know, an antibiotic every 12 hours, for example, then uh, not at the same time, but also mm. every 12 hours, take a probiotic. Yeah. I think that's a, that's, Sound logic, it's a good idea. Can you patent a strain of bacteria? Um, it's a good question, and technically you can. So um, there are companies that own um, the intellectual property or, or um, the rights to certain strains of probiotic bacteria. So in short, the answer to your question is yes, basically. Yes, I've been wondering where the money is. Um, you know, in this field of probiotics, which is, you know, really exploding. And of course, if you can either patent an individual bacteria or a combination, mm -hmm. then there's the money. What do you, what do you know about that? Yeah, it's, it's big business. I mean, like you, I've worked in natural products for, for many years. And one of the things that's very unique about probiotics is that they do have this patentability or, um, or, or ownership potential. And, that's unusual for natural products, like with vitamins and minerals and arguably most herbs and um, botanical extracts and things. You can't really do that because, you know, everyone's got access to vitamin C. Um, but with probiotics, it's a different story. And I think there's something important in that that helps explain why there's such a, you know, a, a strong commercial drive behind probiotics that you don't necessarily see with other natural products like vitamin C, for example, um, there's, there's some big business in it. Yeah, I mean, we see studies on specific strains or combinations of strains, including those used in drinks like Yakult and Actimel. Mm -hmm. um, and one wonders, yes, are these commercially owned or patented strains or combos? Because I, my logic is that if a bacteria like Lactobacillus acidophilus is present in nature and present in the gut, it should be unpatentable. Mm. So uh, what is it that makes these either combos or strains patentable? Do you, do you happen to know? Yeah, so, so what's happened is, is that the genetic um, composition, so originally they're isolated, then the genetic composition of the, these unique strains, once they're isolated and they've, you know, um, and a way to culture them and reproduce them, essentially farm them, um, is discovered, the, the DNA sequence is, is um, obtained and then basically a, um, an intellectual property right or, or type of patent can be created around that uh, sequence. So the, 
So essentially, it's it's like discovering a new type of, I don't know, apple, for example, um, and then farming that apple and then owning it based on the fact that you have a unique um, genetic type of apple <laughs> and um, and then selling it as such. And if anyone tries to copy copy you, your lawyers come after them, basically. <laughs> and that's, that's essentially what's happened um, with a lot of probiotics is there there is um, ownership commercially of unique probiotic strains and sometimes combinations of strains but usually it's the strain itself that is that has some ownership yeah it sounds like a sort of an extension of what monsanto learned about genetically modifying food because of course for those who aren't aware of it uh, you know there's always a big move to somehow own food right and uh, you know this is I'm sure a lot from that field has transferred over into the into the probiotic field. Yeah, it has. And a, a lot of the original commercialization of probiotics comes from, from big food companies, but that's now spread into pharma and um, you know, and 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 other groups, you know, globally. So it's definitely a I I would um agree that a the original um, commercialization of this has really taken lessons from from big food so to speak and um, it's certainly interesting and I think when you think about it like this it explains a lot of why you see such heavy marketing and push behind um, probiotics is because there's you know unique commercial opportunities related to them versus other products or ingredients yeah and it's always something to bear in mind I'll use an analogy here uh, uh, you know, a few years ago, two companies managed to make a form of, of folate or folic acid as the synthetic cheap form. Yeah. Five methyl folate. And it's good. I mean, there's no question. It bypasses certain enzyme deficiencies and, you know, a small percentage of people. So it's not wrong. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, suddenly it's, it's, uh, it's kind of patentable, commercially available. So gets the money for research. So we'll see a lot of research on specific strains or specific combinations of probiotics of bacteria. And, you know, the conclusion is they are the ones that are the most important when actually it may just be that they are the ones that are getting the most research money because they've got a commercial imperative. It doesn't invalidate the research, but it's perhaps something we should bear in mind. Yeah. It's a, it's an extremely good point. And, and I think another, um, Thing I'll add to that just for, for listeners is that, um, you know, so I've done a lot of work on, on IBS and there's a, a book, etc. And a, a question I've always Very wanted. Book. Tell us about your book. Thanks. <laughs> but what, what I want to do briefly is continue this theme because you have a really good point here that I think deserves elaborating. So if you've got a probiotic that's received a lot of research investment and funding to do clinical trials and show that it works for this or that, it's you know, it, it doesn't necessarily invalidate it, as you point out, but what it does is it puts that intervention or that, you know, that approach on a pedestal. And the question I have is, well, if you compared that probiotic to something that was non-patentable and cheaper and more accessible, um, you know, would it work just as well? So an example of that is food, you know, so if you compared the effects of an apple even, um, and its ability to improve microbial ecology to a probiotic, I would guarantee you that you'd find very similar effects, if not better effects from the apple and its ability to improve your gut bacteria. 
but no one's going to do that. It's, it, you know, it doesn't make sense commercially to fund studies on Apple because you can't patent it, whereas the probiotic you can. So I think, you know, just building on that point, um, I think there's definitely food for thought there when we're being sold probiotics is that maybe there are other things that work just as well. There's also, you know, on the sort of general theme, a lot of people, myself included, who would rather than seeing randomized placebo controlled trials, which of course you could do with, you know, bacterial supplement versus a placebo, uh, we'd like to see um, uh, in a head to head comparison. So, for example, mm. if a new antiviral drugs comes out, uh, rather than comparing them to placebos, why not compare them to vitamin C? You know, compare them to something else that works. It would be very interesting, but of course, it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really good point. Yeah. I was just looking at a piece of research out uh, today, which is showing how uh, vitamin C actually protects DNA from damage leading in the direction of cancer. Well, Merck's new uh, antiviral drug actually damages your DNA. So, you know, anyway, we move slightly off topic. Generally, what sort of conditions can probiotic supplementation help? Yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of work, you know, because perhaps because of this commercial interest, I mean, it's, to my mind, it's largely advantageous that this has worked out this way, but there's been a lot of research, cl human clinical research and really good clinical trials done on probiotics for a really wide range of conditions. And I mean, some of the areas that stand out in the literature and, and all of these areas I'm about to mention have a lot of human clinical trials in each area and often, you know, things like meta-analysis, et cetera, to, to support their use there. But some things that point, stand out are um, antibiotic-associated diarrhea or side effects, as we've touched on, irritable bowel syndrome, as we've touched on, um, even more in severe um, digestive disorders like inflammatory bowel disease, um, more so the value of probiotics in that area is for the maintenance of remission or keeping symptoms at bay, um, but they definitely have value in that area. There's some value for the prevention of recurrent urinary tract infections. Um, and then there are things that are more sort of um, peripheral of the gastrointestinal tract, uh, you know, itself. And, and we've seen studies showing that they can help reduce the occurrence of um, atopic eczema in children and even potentially asthma. Um, we've seen some really interesting effects on the immune system in general, such as protection against upper respiratory tract infections. And then whether it's really getting interesting in more recent years is the effect of probiotics on cognition and behavior. And there is a bit of evidence, not a lot at this stage, but there's a bit of evidence to suggest that some probiotics may have benefit for things like depression even, and improving cognition in mild cognitive impairment and other sort of related cognitive disorders. So, I mean, and that's just scratching the surface. There's a lot of other areas, but that should give listeners a bit of a, a picture for where this is all going. They definitely have a lot of value in a really wide range of um, areas. Yes, and the, and the strongest evidence, as you say, seems to be mainly around uh, infections and inflammatory disorders and gut-related disorders. But of yeah. course, we're learning more and more that uh, a state of inflammation exists in you know, many cognitive disorders, including dementia, depression, yeah. and so on. Absolutely. So, 
but as you say, I've, I've, you know, I haven't quite found those definitive studies yet on depression. Yeah, I mean, it, the end date. it's mostly um, not very good. So there's a lot of excitement around probiotics that's not really met by the science yet, and the a lot of it is is um, types of research that are not very generalizable to depression itself. So you hear a lot about probiotics being great for depression or the gut brain axis, but um, most of it is animal model studies. The work that's often been done in humans is not in depressed individuals. So they just give probiotics to healthy people and see if they, you know, find some mild improvement in how they feel basically. Um, And the same is true in mice. They often, you know, it's hard to generalize the work that's being done in animals to humans. And in some cases, the probiotics that have been tested in mice for depression have failed in human studies. Um, as to my knowledge, there's only one reasonable human clinical trial of a probiotic in um, a defined um, uh, made a depressive disorder. And it did seem to work well, um, but we need more than one study to really back this up. And I think um, we need to you look at this with some skepticism and trepidation at the moment and, and realize also, you know, there are great things nutritionally, as you know, I mean, I'm talking to the expert here, so I'm not going to teach you anything, but there are great things nutritionally we can do that have a huge impact on depression without even worrying about probiotics, you know, like as, as you know, with diet and, and um, supplementation. So I think, um, we may get there, but at the moment, it's it's just really interesting to watch the research in that area evolve. Do you supplement probiotics every day? No, I don't. I um I I used to when I when I buy into the <laughs> marketing pitch a bit more, but I I find um I I do just fine without them. Um, so I so I don't personally take them daily. Um, do personally, you have them available for certain circumstances, and if so, what? Which ones? Yeah, I think I think they are really handy, and I do recommend them if they're needed um, to people. And I think um, a good thing to do is is just keep it very simple. Um, I'm a bit of a, a um, I have a bias towards things that have evidence behind them. So what I would suggest to do if you're looking at trying probiotics is it can be difficult to navigate as a consumer because. You know, you've got to look at the science or ask the brand because the packaging doesn't tell you much around probiotics, but it's good to be able to identify a probiotic that's been shown to work for what you want to use it for, basically, because not all of them work for everything. Um, so, for example, if you've got irritable bowel syndrome, you want to hunt down a probiotic that's been shown to help people with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and that can take a little bit of investigation but it's a good way to go about it. Um, more broadly speaking, I think, you know, there is a few good sort of generalizable strains that are handy to have around. Um, some of the better ones that have been around for years are like Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, which is just a, a great all-rounder, seems to work well for a lot of different things and good to know about. Um, there's a combination of strains you'll be familiar with called Lab4, Um been around for years also great little combination of strains got some great human clinical studies behind it and another one i'll just add is um a type of yeast called saccharomyces bilardii which is a bit of a mouthful and 
Saccharomyces boulardii um, has some great evidence for traveler's illness. So if you're heading overseas um, and you're worried about getting sick, it's quite a good one to have in your travel bag and take with you because it kills off sort of um, foodborne uh, infectious microorganisms and it helps stop things like diarrhea, really, really useful little um, probiotic to know about for, for, for people who, who travel a bit. So there's a few, few tips and, and uh, insights there. And in the early days, we had to keep them in the fridge. Is this necessary? Um, I think personally, it's a good idea. Even if the brand tells you you don't need to, it's just good practice because you will get better viability and, and a better shelf life. But generally speaking now, most probiotics don't require refrigeration because of advances in stability of the um, of stabilizing the, the bugs in there so they don't go off. And um, yeah, so you can just keep it on the shelf. That changes, of course, if you live in the tropics, but, but here in, in England, it's, it's absolutely fine generally to, to keep them at room temperature. And what stops stomach acid killing probiotics? Yeah, they, what's interesting is that a lot of probiotics that have been commercialized um, and have been tested early on as part of the screening process for resistance to stomach acid. So generally, these probiotics um, will survive, um, not completely, but enough to work will survive stomach acid. Um, and I believe this comes down to just their inherent structure um, of, of the bacteria themselves and their resilience to acid. So um, yeah, you don't need to worry too much about stomach acid killing them all. So it's not necessary to take them on an empty stomach or is it maybe advantageous to take with food? What's your recommendation? I personally don't think it matters too much, but um, you know, if you know, I know there are different recommendations out there, but personally, I, I, I'm not sure it makes a big difference. I mean, the reason I raise this, it always struck me when that wonderful New Zealand researcher uh, infected himself with uh, Helicobacter pylori and produced ulcers yeah. uh, as the proof that stomach ulcers, which everyone thought was purely a consequence of stress, yep. uh, was caused by Helicobacter pylori. Then, of course, the, the thinking is, you know, you've got to get rid of that bacteria with uh, usually two different antibiotics, uh, plus the uh, proton pump inhibitor drugs, you know, the azole drugs, which suppress all stomach acid. Uh, but it, it, it always made me wonder why has somebody developed this, uh, if you like, pathogenic bacteria in their stomach? Could it be that they had low stomach acid in the first place? The point is that stomach acid's job, one of its jobs, is effectively to you know, kill off dangerous bacteria that you might be eating in your food. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a good, it's a good question. And, and certainly this um, idea of hypochlorhydra or low stomach acid has been important in nutritional medicine for a long time. So, it, you know, there's a lot of um, empirical or experiential evidence around this, but there's not a great deal of, of like published stuff. It's um, does seem to be important though. And 
Uh, also, the numbers of actual bacteria, I don't mean different bacteria, the, the numbers of billions of bacteria within supplements, powders, capsules has kind mm. of cranked up and up uh, <laughs> yeah. in the last 20 years. I mean, I knew when having one billion uh, you know, viable organisms for a capsule was considered good news. Well, I've seen some supplements that give 100 billion. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. how many do you actually need to, if you like, re-inoculate the gut? Yeah, surprisingly little. So um, a lot of this sort of race to the top of um, the number of bacteria in a capsule has really just been a, a, a sort of marketing commercial ploy. Um, what we do know is that probiotics work quite well at very different strength ranges. We don't often know what is optimal in terms of dose and the variability um, that we're seeing in products is often just, at least in research, is often just a best guess. Um, and what's happened is, as researchers have gone, oh, let's just put as much as we can in um, and see if it works. And if, if it does, then they stick with that number. There have been very few what we call dosed response studies where they've actually set out to test what is the best dose um, of, of a probiotic. The only one that I can think of that has, well, actually there's two, I lie. There's one, I'll use an example though, is, is this one I mentioned earlier, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. So basically what has been demonstrated is that there is an optimal range of about 10 to 20 billion in adults, because that's the range where you start to see the best sort of changes in the microbiome and the best colonization. And above that makes no difference. So generally speaking, there's no point taking more of that particular bacteria. Um, but, you know, for consume, you know, for the people out there, it's just, it's just confusing. But what I would say is that don't believe the hype more is not necessarily better. Um, the best barometer we have for the right amount to take is what amount has been shown to work of that product, basically, um, which again can be difficult to navigate because you need to look at the research. But low can be fine, you know. If there's a, even only a few hundred million in a in a formula, it doesn't mean it's not going to work. That could be an effective dose for that product. Can you have too many bacteria in your gut? Yeah, you definitely can. And, and the big area where this is being studied is, is um, this area of, of what we call small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And it's not so much that you have too much bacteria overall, it's just too much in the wrong place. So the idea with this condition, um, if you could call it that, or phenomena, is that Normally, the small intestine, um, which is the upper part of your digestive system, has relatively few bacteria compared to the lower part, which we call the bowel or the large intestine. Now, in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, as the name suggests, there's an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. And this has been linked to problems, uh, predominantly irritable bowel syndrome type problems where you get a lot of bloating and distension and, and, um, and even things like diarrhea. So the answer is, is yes. And, um, and, it, and it's related to this phenomena of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And can you pick that up in a test and uh, what role do probiotics play in helping that condition? 
Yeah, you can. So there's a, a simple breath test. It's probably best done under the supervision of your therapist or even a gastroenterologist. And the breath test will give you an indication. It's not very accurate, but it will give you an indication that it may or may not be there. Um, there is a lot of variability in accuracy. So you don't want to hang too much on, on a breath test. But if it is there, um, you can uh, look at interventions to manage that. And one of those are probiotics. And generally speaking, a lot of probiotics have been shown to help reduce small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and improve the symptoms um, that you might be experiencing as, as well. So definitely probiotics stand out as one potential uh, treatment approach for, for this uh, problem. It sounds a little bit like the cousin of yeast overgrowth. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is a bit like that. It's very much um, analogous to this idea that we had, um, you know, I think it was truss in the, in like the fifties and, you know, they, they came up with this idea of um, the candida complex and syndrome. And at the time we were thinking like this, that we didn't really know for sure what was happening. because we didn't have a lot of good tests and, and even treatments, so to speak, but it's very much similar and um, almost in a way is, is, is an identical concept and idea where we've got bad bugs causing problems and we're treating it with, with a, an almost antimicrobial type regime and, um, and helping improve symptoms. So it is a bit like, you know, yeast overgrowth for the 21st century. The, I remember back in the 80s, uh, thanks to the logic of Dr. Stephen Davies at Biolab in London, we used to uh, get somebody on an alcohol-free diet and then give them a measured amount of a simple sugar. Mm. And it didn't matter. Fructose would do the job uh, just as well as glucose. Uh, but take an alcohol blood test before and then one hour later. And uh, if you saw a spike in the blood in alcohol, you could deduce there's a lot of yeasts, uh, you know, high up in the intestine, uh, probably bacteria as well, fermenting sugar into alcohol. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that is really brilliant. And I mean, that's an established phenomenon. We call it auto brewery syndrome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, any medical professional can look that up. It exists. It sounds crazy, but people can be fermenting sugar to make alcohol and that's measurable in the blood. It's, it's pretty yeah. amazing. Uh, from a clinical point of view, I'd always say that if you, you know, if you feel worse after fruit or if you bloat after fruit, mm. but also if you have symptoms, which if you think about it are a little bit like being drunk. <laughs> yeah, you know? ab absolutely. Yeah. They're great clinical insights. <clears throat> I had an interesting thing uh, a few years ago when I was building our retreat center, cause I got a, staphylococcus aureus infection which resulted in some rather unpleasant boils and it wasn't mrsa uh, which is the antibiotic resistant version but it was close to that and I, I had a course of antibiotics which didn't work and another one which didn't work and then i remember reading uh, some years ago about a very interesting study which it was an animal study uh, but also took human cells and infected them with this staphylococcus aureus it's the SA in MRSA, and gave high doses of niacin, vitamin B3, and it was incredibly effective. Wow. So I Googled this, and I found uh, a few people, one of whom was on his 15th course of antibiotics for MRSA, mm. 
and then took a couple of grams of, of uh, niacin, in fact, niacinamide, which non-blussing form works fine. And uh, within a week was, was sorted out. And I thought, oh my God, I've got that. I've got that in my cupboard. <laughs> and it worked the trick, but I've not heard anything more about niacin and its antibiotic effects since. Wow, that's incredible. It's new to me and I'm definitely going to be looking that up after this call. Now, one of the first discoverers and promoters of supplementing these human strains of bacteria, because they were originally cultured from um, feces, had their career ruined. This was in the mid 80s by a newspaper article entitled Let Them Eat Shit. Because <laughs> a large percentage of feces is bacteria and they had originally cultured them from, from feces. But now uh, we hear of studies giving fecal transplants from healthy people uh, to unhealthy people for potential medical medical benefits. Is it working? What's your thought about this? Oh, man, this this is so interesting. And, and they literally are studying people eating shit now. And well, not so much eating it. It's sometimes it's given as a freeze-dried capsule, but it's mostly delivered as a uh, an enema. And the therapy we're talking about here is what's called fecal microbial transplantation, which is a bit of a excuse the pun, mouthful. And basically it has its roots in a traditional therapy. The way this was discovered and its use in modern medicine owes it owes its discovery to traditional Chinese medicine. So reportedly um, there is an old therapy in traditional Chinese medical textbooks um, in which um, feces from a healthy donor is administered to people with severe debilitating gastrointestinal uh, type disease, particularly severe diarrhea, basically, that, that is life-threatening. And this idea was picked up and, um, you know, the logic now, knowing how much we know about the microbiome makes sense. You know, if we take feces, which is in fact full of microbes from a healthy individual and then transplant them into someone who has a degraded or severely um, sort of poor unhealthy microbiome like someone with um, I don't know inflammatory bowel disease for example you know would that help recolonize and um, protect them against disease and it seems that it does it's a really powerful therapy it's being studied globally now but there are institutes in the UK that are looking at it it's primarily, being looked at for, as you, as you point out, um, you know, vancomycin or, or antibiotic resistant uh, infections in which the antibiotics don't work. The disease has a very high mortality or death rate without um, any treatment. And what's happening is, is these fecal microbial transplants are, are basically saving lives. The, their ability to stop people dying is upwards of 90% probability. So it's, hugely beneficial and what the way we think they're working is basically this is the best probiotic you could imagine i mean it needs more study and we don't understand potential side effects but basically you're taking all these bacteria that you can't culture and put in a pill and um, inoculating an individual and it has an ability to re-establish a healthy microbiome in a way that probiotics don't and the work on this is extending out from antibiotic resistant infections into many other interesting areas. I mentioned inflammatory bowel disease, but also 
things like autism and depression and weight gain and metabolic or sorry, cardio metabolic disease and all these autoimmune diseases, all these really interesting areas, because we know that the microbiome is involved in them and we're, we're essentially just improving metabolism. So very, very interesting area of, of work. And, um, you know, people are reading shit. It's, um, it's remarkable. I wasn't aware of that story of, um, you know, someone being demonized some years ago. There's certainly, you know, uh, that's turned on its head now. Mm. And I mean, I can see how that could be a sort of a real kickstart. I think that's important because, mm. uh, you know, once you kind of reestablish the right bacteria, you kind of, you've got to feed them just like a garden, really. And it strikes me that a healthy person's microbiome is presumably a consequence of a healthy diet. So surely changing the diet not just inserting someone else's microbiome, but of course, you know, in these serious conditions, you may need to do that for the kickstart is the place to start. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, where this all comes back to is where we started. If you're, if we know that an important barometer of a healthy microbiome is diversity, the question then is, is, well, how do we promote diversity in our microbes for better health with food? And the answer is really simple. It's diversity. So the reason our microbiome becomes diverse is because we have little specialist bacteria that digest different types of food. And if you're eating lots of different types of food, you encourage a really rich diversity because you need specialists to break down all these different foods that you're eating in your microbiome. So diversity of diet translates to diversity of microbiome which translates to, you know, to better health potentially. So I think this is really one of the overarching concepts that's really revolutionized the way we think about food and nutrition in the context of the microbiome is that, you know, we, we need to be eating from trillions of microbes, um, not just ourselves. And one of the key things that they need is, is um, really diversity. Yeah. And fiber, I think is important as well, or whole foods. Yeah. Absolutely. So really key on top of that are a few things. One of them, is, of course, is fiber. And it, you know, it, it really comes back to what we've known since the 70s is, is basically that fiber-rich diets feed good microbes. We call this the prebiotic concept in that fiber is a food for good bugs and that um, encourages a, a healthy microbiome. But I will add, that our thinking has changed a bit. It's not just fiber. It's really um, a lot of other things in our food as well. And, and actually it turns out it's a lot of nutrients. So things like phytonutrients and phytochemicals have a really profound and important effect on our microbiome. For example, just asking someone to drink a cup of tea uh, of green tea once a day has a measurable effect on improving the health of their microbiome. And I mean, what's in green tea? It's just phytonutrients. And then lots of other things like vitamins and minerals and fatty acids. And all of these things have positive effects on our microbiome. Just taking vitamin D will improve your microbiome. So, you know, it's not just fiber, it's the whole of our diet. But as you rightly point out, it's whole foods um, and natural, close to nature foods, rich in vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients like plants and fruits and vegetables and whole grains and et cetera, that are the most important. So, yeah. So one of the takeaway messages is to 
is to use different foods, try different foods. Yeah, absolutely. Lots, yeah. lots of variation. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the average person consumes a very, very narrow band of foods. It's, I, I don't know the exact figures, but I think it's extraordinarily narrow. It may be. It is mainly bread, I believe. (laughs) It it is. I think um, I can give you a few figures. So I think 90% of the world's calories come from four foods. They're all cereals. Mm -hmm. And then um, the average number of fruits and vegetables sits somewhere about 24 or so, uh, you know, in in Western society. And what's interesting is in um, more traditional societies, it could be upwards of 500 different fruits and vegetables. So you know, we're way off the mark when it comes to variety in our diets. And, and we certainly need to be eating a, a wider range of, of interesting foods. And, I'll, you know, just for listeners, a good tip is start using more herbs and spices. It's mm. a really good way to get diversity in your diet easily and um, adds a lot of nutritional value and your microbes love it. Yeah, I just came back from Colombia where they have a wonderful array of incredible fruits, many of which I'd never eaten before and vegetables and all the rest of it. But most people were actually living living on carbs and yeah. biscuits and bread. It's actually my definition of pandemic, an epidemic of preventable diseases caused by eating too much bread and other fast carbs. Yeah. I called yeah. pan in Spain in case you didn't get it. And then uh, <laughs> I did get that, but it was good and, to uh, emphasize for listeners. Yeah, and, and pain in France, well, it's pronounced pan. Exactly. That's yeah. straight funny, that isn't it? Um, there's something in that, but you're absolutely right. It's um, unfortunately this industrialization has no bounds. And, you know, these beautiful traditional cultures that had a wide variety of foods accessibly as moving to this horrible um, industrialized diet yes and years ago when food combining was very popular and well food non-combining to separate your proteins from your carbs i remember interviewing two professors of anthropology and uh who and archaeology i believe who had the largest collection of ancient human feces uh collected from all over the world and of course it varied Mm -hmm different parts of the world but the question i wanted to ask them was you know what were they eating were they finding in the feces separated proteins like you know any meat proteins and none of the you know carbs etc and uh, they said no not at all massively mixed bag in mm. ancient human feces and that's that's kind of what we need <laughs> yeah yeah it's a good take home is that it's all about variety and that's written in our history that's where we need to get back to yeah, variety is the spice of life, and you need lots of spices as well. <laughs> so, Ben, we run out of time. I want to uh, remind people that you have an excellent book called The Digestive Health Solution, um, and I read it before writing my book, Improve Your Digestion. Uh, it is excellent, and especially on the topic of uh, small intestinal bowel overgrowth, it's definitely a standard textbook for that. So thank you massively for your endless trawling of the science. It takes a lot of work, a lot of effort. And I'm very grateful uh, that there are people like you out there uh, keeping up this excellent work. So thank you for your insights. I know my listeners will uh, have a much better idea and concept of this whole and fascinating field of the microbiome. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.